makes you throw up. And in that day, I think the temptation sometimes is for us to, we think in terms of spiritual hotness and spiritual coldness. Somebody's spiritually hot, spiritually cold. Probably that would be language that would be foreign to, to the first century uh, readers. Uh, but they would certainly, certainly tie their life's experience in the city of Laodicea to the hot springs of Heropolis and to the, to the refreshing cool waters of Colossae. And they would also think about their own insipid, tragic water supply. And they would realize that it's probably a statement having to do with usefulness. And certainly Jesus says some things as we move on through this that speak to their inaccurate assessment of themselves. And and that's, I think, the the important significance of the language is to realize that that to, to be hot or cold is to be in a place of potentially being useful in in the hands of the Lord, whether it be being brought to repentance, whether it be a place where, if we want to use the idea of spiritual hotness, where they are just ablaze for the truth of the gospel. But but for those folks, they would have, again, tied it to their their specific location and their life's experience of life was hard because the water was lukewarm, was, was just poor in supply. Uh, They would think of the benefit or the usefulness of the hot springs. You know, you could think of sort of first century hot tub. That's that's what the hot springs would would be for. I have never come in from a hard day of working in the sun and and desired to have a nice, tall, lukewarm glass of water. Uh, You probably haven't either. Oh, Zach, I don't want to hear about your desire for lukewarm water, okay? Jesus wants to vomit them. The attitude of the believers and the actions or the lack of those actions, it seems that they result from an attitude that makes Jesus in this image nauseous. What is the attitude? In verse 17, we get a clue, and we read these words together. Did you say, I am rich? He addresses the believers in Laodicea. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. What do you hear there? You say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. What does that sound like? Self-satisfaction? Sufficient? Self-sufficient? Arrogance? Yeah, yeah. There is that sense of, of, of being in a place where... We're, we're set, we're, we're good in terms of, of our spiritual condition. Somehow the believers at Laodicea had become ignorant and blind to their, to their true condition. The city in which they lived was a very wealthy city early on. And there was definitely a self-sufficiency in, in telling the Roman Empire, we can, we can take care of the rebuild, don't worry about it. I wonder if it's possible, again, just, it's just speculation, did that, did that sense of self-sufficiency begin to kind of work its way or creep its way into the life of the church? Was it having potentially a, a neutralizing effect, lukewarm being kind of, kind of neutral, upon their, their spiritual vitality as, as a witness for Christ in the city? Now, some commentators 
feel that this reference to saying, I am rich and I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, they want to say that that had to do with, with material possessions. And, in, and indeed, it might have. One of the struggles that we would face with that is that in that day, that didn't really speak to the condition of any of the Christians in any of the churches in the Roman Empire, unless there was compromise. Unless there was a, a willingness to, to not profess the name of Jesus. If there was a willingness on the part of the believers to put aside some of those, those harder things that led to life being difficult under the Roman Empire so that perhaps the persecution could lessen. There, there is just no mention in here, as we have seen in some of the other letters, of standing faithful, standing strong. Is it possible that as a result of those things, they had become too comfortable, perhaps even lackadaisical to some degree in their, their commitment to Christ. And I wonder if this is where the lesson is for us as followers of Christ, living in our age and in our culture. The, the believers at Laodicea had grown comfortable, it would seem, in somewhat of a a lukewarm or insipid, unfruitful commitment to Christ as Lord. And they had had lost sight of who Christ had called them to be. They had lost sight of those words that Jesus spoke to his disciples in Matthew. I will build my church. The gates of hell are not going to stand against it. You know, it's important always to remember that 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 language, as we have seen in the past, is of a church that's on the offensive you know, as the gates stand around the fortress of hell, that's the image that Jesus paints. It, it is the church that is banging down those gates. It is the church that is penetrating the powers of darkness with the truth of the gospel and the light of Christ. It is not the church that has gates around it. And sometimes if we're, we're not careful in our thinking about that, we can probably subtly sort of assign gates or walls to this protective image around the church. Jesus, Jesus knew none of that. Jesus is the protector of his church, and he calls his church to be on the offensive. The church is not called to be comfortable. The church is called to be faithful. And, and it is a call for those who are followers of Jesus, who are, who are participants in the life of the kingdom, to live out the values of the kingdom of God in this world. And to live with allegiance to Christ as Lord of our lives. That is what Laodicean believers were called to. That is what Applewood believers are called to. And and that is by default a call to an uncomfortable life. The table that is set here this morning that we're going to celebrate together in a few minutes It is a visual reminder that to be a follower of Jesus is costly. It came at a great price to Jesus. And and when when we make little of that sacrifice by the way that we live our lives, I think we belie what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so my question to, to all of us this morning would be, how, how has your life, how has my life become, become comfortable 
in terms of my relationship to Jesus Christ as Lord. And that was really what was, as we've seen in the past, so often at the heart of the persecution, the point of persecution for the believers that were living in that first century under the Roman Empire was that Jesus was Lord. There wasn't a lot of conversation about Jesus as Savior. Jesus as, as Lord, meaning Jesus the one to whom I have surrendered my life. You know, the, the Romans knew what it meant to say that Jesus, or that, that Caesar was Lord. Lord was the supreme authority. Lord was the boss. Lord was the one who said, this is the way that life is to be lived. And so, here is, is kind, of a, kind of a take-home point for you this morning question if your commitment to Christ is not challenging you in your thinking about the basic ways in which you live your life, it could very well be that you are, I am, in a lukewarm state. Let me say that one more time. If your commitment to Christ is not challenging you in your thinking about the basic ways in which you live your life, it could very well be that you and I are in a lukewarm state. And the reason I say it that way is I think sometimes we think in terms of commitment to Christ as it's this all-out commitment that means I'm going to end up as a missionary in the jungles of Indonesia. To those who are called to that by the Spirit of God, that is what it means. But how about an all-out commitment to Jesus Christ in the jungles of the corporate world in which you work? to the jungles of the the corporate educational system in which you go to school, the jungles of the less than friendly environment that you may find yourself in, in your neighborhood or in your workplace. Is this registering with you? That's why I think that that we, we need to ask that question about our commitment and how is it challenging our thinking, which hopefully ultimately leads to the way that we act in the basic ways in which I live my life. How do people see me in terms of how I react in certain situations? How do people see me using my money? How do people see me prioritizing my time? Francis Chan says that lukewarm living... And claiming Christ's name simultaneously is utterly disgusting to God. I think he's correct. So, so what does lukewarm living look like? Well, I'm tempted to give you my list. Because, of course, if it's on my list, it's, it's right, and, and you should live the way that I do. But you know me well enough to know I'm not going there. Here's how to live a life for Christ... Uh, in a way to, uh, to not nauseate him. Follow my example, I've found the secret. No, no, we, we won't go there. But, I, but I'm going to suggest to you just a, what I think is a life-shaping principle that will take us down the path of being those passionate followers of Jesus versus taking us down the path that results in being lukewarm and being vomited out of his mouth. If you have put your hope in Jesus to be your Savior, 
then make sure that you are submitting to Him as Lord. That would be the the principle. And I realize that when I say that, I'm just stirring up an age-old controversy, so be it. If you have put your hope in Jesus to be your Savior, then make sure that you are submitting to Him as Lord. The question that has been asked for decades, if not centuries, can Jesus be your Savior and not your Lord? I will leave the ultimate answer to that with Jesus, but I'm going to tell you I don't think it's possible. Don't think it's possible to have Jesus as Savior and not have Him as Lord. The question I think arises because people, you and me, we want to know if we can still do this or still do that, whatever behavior or activity that that might be, and still go to heaven. And I would suggest that that's probably nonsense. Lordship, lordship is about ownership. Lordship is about the question, who's in charge? Who calls the shots in my life? Who gives direction for the way that my life should be lived? Most of us know well the demand of Jesus for those who would be his followers. Jesus said clearly, deny yourself, take up your cross, and then live that out as you follow me through life. To deny self and to take up my cross, uh, in in some ways those are the two sides of the same coin. It is a call to die to self. Salvation is about surrendering control of my life. We sang those words, rid me of myself. That is a prayer for the lordship of Jesus to be lived out every moment of my life. Rid me of myself. I think if, you've, if we have truly committed our lives to Jesus as Lord, then the Spirit of God who indwells us conflicts us often regarding the fleshly desires that each of us has to protect and to preserve and to be comfortable. All those things are contrary to the one who has denied themselves and taken up the cross. I have an example of this in my own life. It happened at 6.30 this morning. I went on the website of Colgate University to see how the Colgate Raiders fared yesterday in their soccer game. More importantly, I went on there to see how my son, who plays for the Colgate Raiders, fared in his soccer game. He didn't play a minute. And I thought to myself some very ungodly things about the coach. I really did. And the Spirit of God immediately spoke to me and said, Really? Is that really what you think of him? Is that really who he is? Now, I can give you all kinds of rationalizations for feeling that way. I could tell you that it seems that the coach has been really unreasonable and and pretty dishonest with my son at different points throughout the season. And the fact is, I'm his father. And I feel for him, and I want to protect him. 
I don't want to, I want to salvage his confidence. And none, none of those things really factors in to who that coach really is in the eyes of God. He is a lost man. He is a lost man who, who doesn't live the thoughts and the attitudes of Jesus. And he is a man without Christ who will be lost for eternity if he doesn't turn at some point in his life and profess Jesus as Lord. And here's the really hard part that I hate. That it could be that God is using my son to shine the light of Christ into that man's life. And my responsibility is to not think nasty things about him. My responsibility is to pray for the strength of my son to be a bright and shining witness in that man's life. That is what the Spirit of God calls us to do when we respond in ways that do not exhibit the values of the kingdom. What is important to God? That my son plays 90 minutes on a soccer field? Probably not. That's really important to me. Because my image is all tied up in him. What's important to God is that my son takes the rocks and the hard stuff of life that are being thrown his way and he grows in the image of Christ and handles them in a way that brings glory to the Father. I wish I'd have thought that before I called him names. It's really hard and it's really uncomfortable. It's really hard. I have no idea, John. I have no idea why what is going on is going on. But I do know that God is on his throne. And I do know that my son loves Jesus. And he has, at a point in his life, surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. And so now my prayer is, Lord, just keep him right where he needs to be. Sensitive to your spirit and growing through this tough stuff. Dorothy Sayers once wrote, I believe it to be a grave mistake to present Christianity as something charming and popular with no offense in it. So true. We dare not allow our lives, if we are surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, to present that following of Christ as something that is charming and popular and easy and with no offense in it. Jesus asked that very uncomfortable question, Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? In other words, is he Lord? Is he really Lord if we are living the way that we want to? It seems to me that perhaps we have crossed into the realm of lukewarmness when we think we're doing just fine in all those things that make us comfortable the way in which we use our time, the way that we spend our resources and use our stuff, the ways in which we treat and talk and think about people. Because it's the values of the kingdom that impact all of those those things. The values of the kingdom, the one who has surrendered to Jesus as Lord, is always going to be conflicted between the fleshly desires that say preserve and protect and be comfortable and the kingdom desires that say trust me and sacrifice your life. 
to be lukewarm is to be of no use to Christ. And that needs to be great concern to us. But lest we end in a pit of despair, we end with great words that are also contained in this letter. Words that that some of us have known for many, many years if we've grown up in the church. Jesus says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. Boy, what a change of language that is. I'm about ready to vomit you out of my life. But if you'll recognize your error and if you'll repent and if you'll turn and if you'll hear the voice of my spirit knocking on the door of your life, to make the changes in your life that need to be consistent with the kingdom of God and the proclamation of Jesus as Lord, then that Lord says, I'll come in and we'll fellowship and we'll dine together and we'll live life together. That is so awesome. I don't know about you, but I'd rather sit at the table in fellowship than be puked. Awesome words. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. So we come to the table this morning. I want to give each of us just a couple of minutes to, to prayerfully consider some areas that perhaps the Spirit of God has been practically screaming at us. Issues that relate to the Lordship of Jesus and surrender in our lives and and we, we, just, we just don't want to hear that. We don't want to listen. We don't want to go there because it is not comfortable. It is not safe. And yet, it is, a, it is a path to experiencing life and adventure in Jesus that is unequaled, unavailable any other way. Let's take a few moments and, and just pray together. Pray quietly. I'll close and then we will come to the table of our Lord. Lord Jesus, you, you who gave your life for us, call us to give our life in response to your sacrifice, to give it sacrificially for the sake of others, to the glory of your name. we ask that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit is speaking into our hearts as your people, as a part of your church, for your glory and for your praise.